Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Lottie Johnson, the curator of A Countervailing Theory by artist Toyin Oji Odutola, currently showing in the curve until January 2021. This week, we've got an inspiring conversation between Nigerian-American artist Oji Odutola and her friend Erin J. Gilbert, scholar and independent curator of modern and contemporary African and African-American art, where they talk about creative process and storytelling. And now over to Toyin and Erin. My name is Erin Janoa Gilbert, and I am here with Toyin. Hello. And we're here on the occasion of her exhibition, A Countervailing Theory, here at the Barbican. It's Friday, October 9th. Um, the exhibition's been up for a couple months, and it's really a pleasure to now be able to sit down with you after having walked through the exhibition and be able to think through some of what we as an audience are able to see, but then some of what only you as the artist know. Um, and I'm really excited and grateful to everyone who brought us together to make this happen. So I want to start from the beginning, just to provide a little context for those who may not have seen your work before in previous contexts. Um, and at the beginning, so you were born in Nigeria, you were born in Ife. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about how long you were there and where you moved next? And Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was born in Ife, Nigeria. My parents went to, or they met in the university there. So there's no familial ties to Ife. Um, my father is from southwest Nigeria, um, uh, about more west of Lagos. My mother's from Enugu. So mm -hmm. there wasn't any kind of reason for them to meet until Ife, which is still in Yoruba land. Um, but of course, as anyone who knows the history of Ife, that was Benin City. That was the exactly. kingdom of Benin. So it's kind of like a weird, my mother always says this, it's like this weird kind of like fortuitous thing that mm -hmm. I was born there when there was no reason for me to be mm -hmm. um, because there's such a rich artistic cultural history in Ife. Um, but I didn't know that. I wasn't cognizant of that, in fact, until I returned to Nigeria at 16. And I saw like the Benin bronzes and things mm -hmm. like that there. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was just like a kid, you know, who's the daughter of teachers, you know. Mm -hmm. So we lived there for about, I was there for five years. I left when I was five. Um, I have memories of like being in school, getting in trouble, surprise, surprise. And then we came to California and we were there for about five years and then we moved to Alabama. Right. Mm. So it's interesting that you say there's no familial tie, but there's certainly a spiritual tie. Absolutely. And a bond. Definitely. Um, so 
we're going to jump a couple years. I think Alabama is really important as a site, obviously, for you and your development as an adult, you know. But mm. I also want to think about your your formal education. So you earned a BA in studio art and communications from the University of Alabama. Mm. And would you say this degree in communications is equally important as a studio art practice? I think one of the things that we see through this exhibition is your narrative power, your storytelling power. Mm. Do you think you honed some of those skills as an undergraduate? Yeah, I think when, when I was at U, UAH, so University mm. of Alabama in Huntsville, there was an emphasis in studio art at the time. I don't know if it is the same now, that if you got an art degree, you had to get a minor. Mm. You couldn't just get an art degree. I think it has something to do with being a state school. So you could pick anything. Some people picked language. You know, people picked history. I wanted to, initially, I wanted to get the easiest minor. Mm. Hello. Come on. I'm that person. So like I, but then I actually fortuitously, again, it's like these things happen to you. I, I, I really like communications. I really like the department. Um, all the classes I took for my minor were really educational and really helped me in my career. Like I took web design. I took um, copywriting or copy editing. Like, you know, there was a newspaper class and I took that. There was like a lot of really interesting courses. Um, there was even one course I took about the mediation of uh, the internet, you know, and how do, mm -hmm. how do people sort of mitigate the internet, which was very new at the time mm -hmm. because I was that generation that was coming up. So a lot of that helped me later. But of course, when you're in school, you're just thinking, oh, how do I get my credits in so I can graduate? Um, but it is funny because I did, I feel very comfortable in those classes. I felt like it made sense to me um, because I, I am very fascinated with miscommunications, actually, mm -hmm. not communications. as a Like I, I find that when you're a liaison as an artist, um, there's always going to be something that slips through the cracks. And one of the things that I loved about being communication classes is how everyone was so emphasizing audience mm. and, and thinking about audience ex engagement and experience. So that really honed my kind of how I present work um, in exhibitions, but it also how to play with the things that I want people to know in terms of framework and what I don't want them to know. How those um, slippages become yeah, those slippages important. Kind of, to almost bring them out more. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like when you know how it works well, you know what to do when it doesn't. So you can kind of use that and manipulate that. So, um, yeah, communications was, it, it just, things just happen. You don't know why, but it all helped me in my. Well, I, I certainly think one of the things that's very distinctive about your practice is that intention to communicate. Mm -hmm. And if I think about both your parents as teachers and then you as a storyteller and or having really developed skills around communications, I think the audience does benefit from your intention. Um, and certainly with that ex this exhibition, we can talk about that a bit more. Mm -hmm. But after that, you earned an MFA in painting and drawing at Cal College of the Arts. Uh, yeah, California College of the Arts. So what would you say, not just about art, and what did you take from that experience? And how did you begin to formulate yourself in the world mm -hmm. as an artist distinct from others in that context? Well, I was, you know, I, I did do a Yale Norfolk. So mm -hmm. that was like the first taste that I had of like, being around other artists in like a rigorous practice. Like I think when you go to a state school, you you know, you're those weird kids in in the art you know, the art department at the time. But it was such a special um situation being in the art department. I, I felt very free there. But I never really understood what art as an I as a theory, as a I don't know. Uh, 
the way that it's romanticized now and fantasized about now that wasn't in my mind it was it was just like i love to draw that was it it was very basic and then you go in and you're meeting kids from like you know cia and and um RISD and all these other places and they're so about like oh yeah in like five years i'm gonna be I'm gonna have a studio in Brooklyn, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what are you even talking about? Like, wasn't I really was wasn't that, a goal at the time. Like that, like you know, out of it. And so I, I, I remember just being around these kids and, and hearing how serious they were, and I thought, oh, this is this is a very serious thing being an artist. It's not just, you know, pretty pictures. And so that was really great. And then I, I kind of had graduated college, had a bit of a moment. It was recession, so there was a lot of stuff with like not getting jobs and. Everyone was really worried and all kinds of things. So I'm just just to give context, you know, right. like I, yeah. there was a lot of like questioning personally about whether I wanted to be an artist or not. And then I applied to CCA and it was amongst, I think, four other schools because I could only afford the application fee of four schools. And I got a full scholarship to CCA. It was the only place that offered me a full scholarship. And I think if I hadn't gotten that, I wouldn't be an artist today because that was kind of what said it because that was the affir- um, the confirmation I needed that I was good. Well, let me ask you a question. Just you, something you mentioned about loving to draw. Mm. You draw morning, noon, and night. Yeah. I mean, some of us are very I mean, I'm grateful concerned. for that I'm problem. Concerned. But how long, how long do you think that you've been drawing? When? What's your first memory of drawing? Oh, God. You know, it's so weird when people ask me that because mm. I'm not that person. I wasn't that kid. When people say, oh, I always wanted to be an artist. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was like, listen, what's going on today? Oh, well, Toya's outside playing. What is she doing? She's both naked, running around. That was me as a kid. Just picture that child. It was traumatizing for my parents. And then all of a sudden, it was like maybe nine. Wow. Yeah, it was, must have been nine when we moved to Huntsville. And I was obsessed with The Lion King. I've told this story many times. I love Timon. And my mom got me a coloring book. And so I just kept drawing Timon. And it was a means of coping, which, funny enough, is how I draw now. So it's a means for me to calm my brain whenever I'm like really anxious or like there's a lot going on or I just feel really overwhelmed in any way I draw. It helps me kind of meditate and center myself. But I ask questions as I'm drawing. You know, it's like a. that's why I keep saying like when I'm drawing like a figure or portrait, I'm traveling in my mind. So mm-hmm. I find it to be topographical. Mm-hmm. I find it to be landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a metaphysical landscape, but it's still something that I'm traversing. So drawing for me is like that kind of like mental journey that allows for me to really think about things really deeply and consider all of the angles and all the perspectives. Um and it's a gift. You know, most people don't have that. You know, some people go into things that are not very healthy and trying mm-hmm. to deal with things. I, I have the gift of just drawing when I'm when I'm scared or when I'm angry, all the rest of it. Yeah. I want to pick up on that idea of the journey because um, there is a place that I've heard you mention several times that influenced your practice. And I'd love for you to tell the audience a bit more about how Japan as space and how Japanese prints in particular mm. have impacted your practice. As we talk about the exhibition, obviously there's a bit that we'll revisit, but oh, how yeah. has Japan influenced you? It's a huge influence. I mean, I it, so much of what you you have, everyone has an age. I think it was like Guillermo del Toro, you know, who uh, directed Pan's Labyrinth. He talks about how like the first 10 years of your life as an artist is like you're obsessed with for the rest of your life. Like it's just something you're always in some way you're revisiting that time. For me, I, I, I agree with that completely because so much happened in the first 10 years of my life in terms of moving from Nigeria, moving even within the US. Japan came to me in a library book 
that I checked out from school in Alabama. And it was just like one of those things that you just pick up and you're like, life in Japan. And it's like an old book from like the 80s or something. But I was like, what is this land? And it was, you know, just like kind of fascination. And then later on, I think anime started getting really big, uh, you know, like Dragon Ball Z and all these other stuff. So I, I was like really into that. But then me being me would mind like the, the anime I should have been shouldn't have been watching mm-hmm. if I'm catching my drift uh a lot of like 80s anime like Midnight City and like Gal Force and uh Vampire Hunter D like all of these weird like stuff that uh, you know a child should not be watching but of course I had Nigerian parents like it's cartoon let's all watch cartoon I shouldn't have been watching those cartoons um but they were so visually gorgeous like I'd never seen the attention to detail and never seen such like interesting compositional play and and textures and all this stuff but it was it was an animation and so around that time that's when my love for Japan came and I was very fortunate later on actually right after our graduate school Mm -hmm. going to Japan seeing being there seeing a lot of the cultural influences that from afar you're not sure of until you're immersed in it and you see how people just think in a certain way consider how to arrange things in a really beautiful way. Um, you know, Eastern philosophies and all the rest Balance. of it. And so, yeah, I was just really, and it became like a, a really interesting source of inspiration for me in all of the stuff that I've done, but particularly in terms of composition. Like I'm really interested in how they compose images um, in the works that I've, like with printmaking in particular. And then also just like the idea of asymmetry in Japanese culture is really important. Like nothing is in the Western, you know, neoclassical legacy, everything's very symmetrical. That doesn't exist there. Everything is very asymmetrical. There always has to be something that is askew, purposefully so. Um, this idea of like things are almost broken and then put back together and it's even more beautiful being put back together than it is in this perfectly symmetrical or whatever form, which is a very American view of like everything being new and, and nice and bright there. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we like things aged and mm-hmm. weathered, but there's something, there's a history to that. There's um, there's a consideration to that and nothing has to be perfect. In fact, in that imperfection, it is perfect. Um, so that, that influenced me a lot. And I've gone back to Japan many, many times and I, I always learn something new every time I go. It's, it's a, it's a real luxury. It's a privilege to get to go. And so I take my time, go to a lot of museums and, and just kind of interact with different aspects of the culture that I find really exciting and interesting and challenging, too. I think we can see all of that through your practice is that attention to detail, mm-hmm. the textures, the intentional asymmetry. All of that is really present within the work. And mm-hmm. so it's nice to be able to hear how it is that you began to um, interact with a culture and how that culture influenced your practice. Obviously, the other culture that's influenced your practice and has influenced this body of work disproportionately is to go back to your birth, right? To go back to Nigeria and to go back to um, the Benin, your encounter with the Benin. You began to talk about that, but you said when you were 16, the first time you saw the Benin bronzes, in Nigeria. You want exactly. to talk about that a little bit and then we'll talk yeah, about it. I'm, I'm so bad about the university because there's a the name of the university my parents, my father worked in and my mother went to where they met. Um, they have a museum that houses some of the um, like Ife bronzes and things like that. I don't know about it now because we hear a lot about stuff being sold on Christie's and under dubious means about how they got out of the country. So I don't know if they still have it. But at the time when I was 16, which is 2001, 
I went with my mother for a month and we stayed in Ife for about a week and a half. It was amazing because I hadn't been since obviously I left. And so it felt like a, obviously a homecoming, mm-hmm. but it also felt like this strange land that was just a fantasy in my head, you know, and it only like existed in America to me through pictures. Mm-hmm. Right. So like to be there and to see like where I went to school, you know, it's a weird experience. Cause you're like, I went there. Wow. Like, you know, it's like, the architecture is beautiful. Like it's funny that we're in a Barbican because the architecture is kind of brutalist in some places. But a lot of post-colonial architecture is like that. Um, a little bit more prettier. No shade on the brutalist. Actually shade, but you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah, and it was just like seeing the Ife bronze um, works, any kind of bronze works from that time was really enlightening because I had no idea. And my mother would kind of like, because I was drawing obviously at the time, she's like, you know, this is where you probably got this from you know mm-hmm. seeing it but mm-hmm. i have no recollection you know recollection of that so yeah being back there was really um influential but i think what i got from it was that the return home for me m- made me realize how little i knew about nigeria mm-hmm. how little i knew about where i was from mm-hmm. not just in terms of like obviously culturally but in terms of just like the imaginary like the you know for instance I mentioned Japan and how much I know about that that's just from being there so often like when you're in a place you notice certain proclivities that our culture has you learn certain things that are uh, very distinct to a nation but so much of what you know Japan they were colonized by the Chinese ancient you know history but for most of it, it's the, you know, Nihongo, the land of the rising sun. It's, they're very proud of that. Nigeria doesn't have that. Nigeria is very young. The name Nigeria is very young. That's not the origin of the name of this country. So, so much of what my idea of Nigeria is, is colored in, by colonialism, is colored by what has happened to the country. So that was always something that I felt a bit of a disconnect too because it's like what am I really learning well and to one extent that idea of the youth of the country right Mm -hmm. and by youth you don't necessarily mean its status obviously we know Africa is a continent you know has the oldest civilization that we know of Mm -hmm. but that knowing is mediated as you said before it's Mm -hmm. mediated by pictures or it's mediated by the television or it's mediated by learning systems Mm -hmm. and museums and schools and universities Equally, I think we might say have um, both underrepresented and misinformed multiple publics Mm -hmm. about Africa and Nigeria specifically. Mm -hmm. So what I think is really interesting is that the way in which you were actually able to travel and spend time and acknowledge not just your own information gap, Mm -hmm. but then what is an information gap for people in the U.S. in general, right? If you're Nigerian and you're seeing Nigeria for the first time and saying, this is not what I experienced on the screen. Mm -hmm. Even more so for non-Nigerians who might have that experience. Mm -hmm. Even more so in a place like Britain, where we are now in the sight of the colonial power that shifted the nature of the country, right? It's actual topography, Mm -hmm. it's actual uh, geopolitical landscape, Mm -hmm. it's economic landscape. And it's language. And it's language. I mean, we talk a lot about, I mean, it's not so much this mediation. I think it's also this idea that so much of what I project onto it is coming from a place of that colonialist lens because I'm thinking about what happened to it not what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that also, color, you know, I hate to use the word colors, but, you know, it, it influences your thinking. Right. But, I mean, language, I'm, I often think a lot about, like, language, not only in Nigeria, 
but also with Japan because there's visual language, right? And so much of what I think when we talk about, for instance, Yoruba, Yoruba that is spoken now is the translation, the dilution that the missionaries did. And was it like, was it mid 1800s or maybe even like, well, maybe even like a little earlier than that, if, if we can, but it was a missionary's translation. The Yoruba that is spoken around the world isn't the Yoruba that they encountered when they first went there. You know, what is what was Nigeria before all of this? And I guess in my mind, even at 16, I wanted to I wanted to encounter that Nigeria. I wanted to 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 acquaint myself with it. But I always came against a wall and that wall was history that wall was colonialism and it's, it's you have to understand how infuriating that is well what yeah. i think you've done which is to liberate both yourself and so many others is to try to reimagine it to ask mm. you ask the question what was it before right and i think it's a question that through the context of this exhibition we're able to think about one of the possibilities one of the imaginaries about what was before but as you say this wall that you come up against um i remember us having a conversation about the exhibition in relationship to its being presented first in the UK and um, this idea of the BBC, right? The BBC's um, 100 Images, which was an amazing History program, world. History yeah. of the World. But um, in one of those particular segments, there was a conversation about the bronze Ife head and it's being found um, in the early 1900s and this idea that it had to have existed BC. But because there was so little information about Nigerian and African artisans at the time, it was posited that it couldn't possibly have been Nigerians who did this. It couldn't have possibly have been you know, um, African people who had this mastery of craft, who had this mastery of iron, who had this supreme artistic culture. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to ask you what your response was to that and how it maybe even influenced what we're experiencing right now. It absolutely influenced it. In fact, that was what started the whole thing. I watched it I not watch. It was a podcast, actually. It was called "A History of the World of in a Hundred Objects." It was done through the British Museum, which is a very interesting institution. And um, basically, they had this Ife, and you know you, how you're going through podcasts and you say, "Oh, like Ife, that's cool." So then I'm listening to it while I'm drawing, and I don't remember. Is just as I'm hearing it, I'm like, "This can't be right." Like they couldn't fathom, and, and, and by they, I mean the man who quote unquote discovered it. This, um, German uh, archaeologist who shall not be named um, basically purported that Atlians, Greek Atlians must have come up from the Niger Delta how? We will never know and taught my ancestors how to create you know, the bronze casting the earliest bronze cast in the world is in Nigeria you know, it's 11th century, was it 11th century? or even early? no, 1100s, it's 12th century so he he couldn't have fathomed the mental and and creative aptitude <laughs> these people have to create an anatomically correct head that had the striations and all these beautiful textures and details that had a function too. It wasn't just an art object; it had a function in, in society that was spiritual, but also um, in terms of like king, you know, royalty and things like that. But listening to this man talk about it, and of course the, the program was very conscious. They had Ben Okri on there saying that, you know, there's a tranquility to the idea of civilization. And despite, you know, this this 
lack of imagination placed on a civilization that was very advanced. That doesn't take away from the power of this object and how it was created. I personally was pissed off. I just thought, what the hell is going on? Like, so much imagination for Atlians? When he's right there with the very artisans that created this thing, the, 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 the people who um, hold this legacy. And I just, it's like when you look at pictures about, you know, curators, not curators, uh, collectors um, around the Victorian era when they started, and then when photography came around, you have them stand next to a craftsman right and the object they created and you know they're very proud and they bring it back to Europe that suddenly removes the power of the craftsman and renders it null but they're bringing back the documentation like oh this is proof that I now the colonizer and the expert on this object well and also there's the anonymity right there's the factor that the name of the maker is very rarely transferred mm. into the site where the work is then shown. Exactly. And so you've also now interacted with these Benin bronzes within mm. the context of the British Museum. Absolutely. And so you've seen them come full circle. Mm -hmm. And one of the parallels, I think, one of the things that this exhibition enables you as an artist to do mm -hmm. is, is a larger project around repatriation not Absolutely. repatriation of just of yeah. objects, but of ideas. And so... Of the imaginary of the creative imaginary. I think that one of the things that is so frustrating is that you get this idea that the only thing that exists that is of value from the continent is tied to extraction, pain and suffering, and erasure. Mm -hmm. That's it. Every creative output is tinged with that. And when you go there, of course they don't see that. They're like, oh no, we're going about our lives. We create all the time. The people who are doing bronze casting now, bronze casting now. But like the the thing is, as a creator, that's what the speculative offers me is a freedom in the imaginary, because I, I live and I exist in the Western world. I wish I could be in Nigeria all the time. I want to. I, mean, I don't know what this election am I? But um, uh, girl child. But in the in the sense that. I I wanted to create an imaginary that could cross that bridge, that transatlantic pain, into something else, you know. And if it is in if it is invented, so be it. But that doesn't mean that invention doesn't come from something true, you know. It doesn't come from something that's real. And seeing the Benin bronze for the first time this year actually is when I went to the British Museum um, to see them. I felt like I was really in a in a very holy space, in a very beautiful space that was reverential and, and very deeply felt. I, I spent a, a good amount of time in that room and really really sat there with them because I felt like they were, they were stories to mine there. And I wanted to take the time to receive them and to be imbued by those stories. I know it sounds very... Appropriate. <laughs> it's appropriate. And yeah. I think not to cut you off, but just to to give you a chance to continue that in the same vein, mm -hmm. you've just used the term extraction. You've just used the term stories that could be mined. Mm -hmm. And in this particular story, a countervailing theory, I think when I first saw it, I said, these are both ancient and futuristic. I remember thinking that they existed in multiple time mm -hmm. spectrums and that this way in which you had already honed the power of the Ife and the power of the Benin bronzes and then had transported us as an audience 
both back to that past with which we were unfamiliar, mm. but to the possibilities of the future with mm. which we're currently unfamiliar. Um, in this context, you play the role of an archaeologist who for the past 10 years has directed the government-sanctioned research and is now reporting on a, quote, newly discovered set of pictographic markings on black shale rocks in a depository mining site. And this is set in the plateau region of Nigeria, specifically Joss Plateau, which is the home of the Nok culture, which means you're also engaging with another history, another way in which a body of work and a set of people have come to be known in the West mm-hmm. through their through those markings. Do you want to talk a little bit about how and why you came to Joss Plateau as the site? It's a lot of a winding road. So right after the 100 years, uh, history of the world, 100 objects, excuse me, then there was this moment of, um, well, I, I, I want to create a history for myself. I just want to be, feel free. And so many artists do this all the time, but I don't know why I felt like I needed permission and so I was looking at a lot of ways where I could be granted permission. And so I kept thinking, what's the oldest rock known? Because mm-hmm. so I was already thinking geologically. Um, and I was thinking, what's the oldest? And basalt rock. I thought about the Olmec in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So basalt rock is like one of the oldest. And it's the one that lasts the longest, you know, volcanic rock. And so then I thought, well, is there basalt rock in Nigeria? There is, but not in the Delta. It's in central Nigeria. I was like, Central Nigeria? I don't know anybody there. You know, I was thinking like Yoruba land, you know, I'm thinking keeping in the Delta. Delta can't hold basalt. But Joe's Plateau has lots of different rock, not just basalt, millions of year old rock formations. And I just started looking at, you know, just looking it up. And I hadn't seen any pictures. I was just reading about it. And then I said, I got to see this place. This sounds crazy. They're saying like all these columnar shapes that are formed from volcanic, you know, rock that had rose from the ground create these rock formations and then of course human interaction possibly from the Nok, possibly from other places had sort of moved them around and created sort of like a stonehenge like sites throughout you know you find it in Riom, you find it in Joe's Plateau specifically and all these other places surrounding it so then I just started looking up I see the pictures of these rocks my god it was like the lord delivered it was crazy like I, I literally was like oh I know exactly what I'm drawing because it it had so much textural possibility and had so much like visual language I could mine diversity. And it was like, I didn't even, and it was, it wasn't just the rocks. It was like the landscape. It was gorgeous. I mean, it was like looking at Eden. It was insane. And I just didn't know this existed. I had no family there. And of course, immediately I asked my parents and my mom's like, you know, I don't know anybody there, but you should, you should do it. My mom knew. She was like, it's like, it's a beautiful place. They, they, Nigerians like traveled at a vacation. It's like one of those kind of places, you know, they have a lot of golf courses, unfortunately, which but is a result of colonialism. <laughs> but you know, That's another conversation. But it's like, you know, it's like a place that people like to go and travel for like summer vacay and like, you know, and, and just relax there. And I can totally see it. It's a beautiful paradise. Um, and so that was the, that was the thing. And, and, and then also just like thinking a lot about, how to, I don't want to say use it, but how do I create something that predates the Nook? Because I didn't want to take away from that history. Right. And and I wanted to play with the idea of this is a land that many people have crossed. I mean, many people have, have been through, you know. Um, multiple civilizations. Multiple civilizations. Yeah. And so then that gives you a lot of freedom. Yeah. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And I loved when you came to the studio because I, I was still trying to figure out what it was. I was like, I don't know if this is an ancient prehistory because there's a lot of sci-fi influences. And you said it yourself that it's it's future and past. It's both. And it's like that just completely opened me up to whatever I could create. I let it happen. I didn't question the marks I was making anymore. I didn't question what, you know, the way my hand would form certain lines. I just let it go. I let, you know, like I've been saying a lot. It's like I, I drew a line and I waited for it to arrive. I didn't want to force it. You let you it know? guide you. I let it guide me, which is very unusual for my process. I don't do that normally. I'm very, you know, very anal. Well, no, I mean, I think it, as a point of reference, why it felt important to really think about the history of Joss as a site mm-hmm. is that the the exhibition that we're seeing is 40 images mm-hmm. all left behind, yes. all that have survived for centuries, all that have now given us a document, an mm-hmm. archive, mm-hmm. Um, all that speak their own language, right? And so there's a way in which that reference that you drew upon literally and have now given us again um, feels so important as a way in which there are multiple types of minings happening. It's a re-engagement, right? Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think also, I mean, I, I've talked to um, the curator, Rujiko Hockley, when I did the Whitney show. One of the things, and she very correctly kind of shot me down when I said it, because I said, I, I grew up not feeling like I had something to claim of mine. Like, I felt like there wasn't something I could point to and say, that is irrefutable. That is. Not that it wasn't there. It just, I didn't feel it. You know, I knew it was there. And my parents said it all the time. They were like, oh, yeah, we have plenty of history. My father used to tell, you know, oratorical stories all the time right. about the history of his family. Right. You know, I come from chieftains on my dad's right. side. So, but I just didn't feel like, you know, in the in the sense of like the Victorian legacy of like here is a catalog of everything the western the yeah. western way of there was not of that. the document of the archive of the archive of, of the history of authoritarianism right. and I just thought well, I just want to give that to, to, to a kid mm-hmm. I want to I guess that's what that show was for me it was like this is yours this is irrefutable it may not be something that is in the same standard that we're used to seeing something in the capital H history, but then what is the capital H history anyway? Well, and that shifts given the time period Absolutely. where the internet, which years ago <laughs> may not have been thought of as a historical document, is now a site of reference for people and has authority. Um, but to try to think about the works and thinking again about this idea of making and letting your hand guide you, um, the second image this is how you were made, final stages, is of Aldo, right? Mm-hmm. The male character, the Koba. Um, and his marks are literally, you are mark-making upon that body. Mm-hmm. And there's a parallel with mark-making in Yoruba culture. There's a parallel with that. And I'd love for you to kind of give us a little bit more insight into that idea of the dual mark making, both you making those marks, but then why it was so important that each one of the figures, both the Koba and the Ishu, both the female and the male, both have very distinct physical markings. Why and how did you come to that for Mm, this body? That's a really good question. Well, they're signifiers, right? And Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be because scarification, of course, is in the culture. I, I hate the word scarification because it always has this sort of like nefarious read. It's it's not seen as that way. Uh, when you go, you know, 
to Nigeria. I mean, it's just like it's it's a marker. I mean, I have cousins with like, you know, the, the two, three marks on the cheeks to show which which order they were born. There's a lot of Nigerians who have issues with that. They say it's very primitive. You know, they they, they dismiss it. It's like oh, it's bar- barbaric, which, you know, we have markings, too. They're called tattoos. Right. Them. Like there's so many cultures that have this. And and it's like I think they're beautiful. Right. I, I love the, the what they signify. I love what it's like a self-definition in a way. Um, but in terms of the Koba, I kept thinking about this idea of like, how do we, one, differentiate them from the Eshu, mm-hmm. but two, how do we also emphasize the fact that they're manufactured, that they're made? Because the Eshu, obviously, you know, they're born. It's a different kind of physical um, presence than the Koba. And so I thought, you know, the only way I could emphasize it was to literally break their bodies up, mm-hmm. to cut their bodies up into segments. So they're they're assembled and then they're, you know, they're drawn in, you know, they're seamed together. They're assembled and then they're seamed together, like almost like a tattoo. And um, so that's what you see in that scene. Um, I also just love tattoos, <laughs> you know. I think that I find tattoos to be a beautiful means of telling a story too on the body. So like, I don't, I mean, some people might look at it and think of it's a violence on the body of the Koba, but I don't see it that way. It's just because every line, if you notice, I don't take great pains to make the lines exactly the same with each Koba. Every Koba has a different way of this, where the lines fall because they're all made in different ways. So there is an individualization of them, even though they're seen as, you know, one of many. So, um, Scarification was, uh, in that sense, was was really fun way of like bringing in this other element to distinguishing the characters and also just kind of making the Koba, to, again, emphasizing their manufacturing, but also emphasizing their um, their helplessness because they don't get to choose how they're made. You know, they don't choose how they look. That they are implicated. They're, they're that they're they are from that. the very beginning in a system. And for those who may be looking at the exhibition after having seen or listened to this podcast, Mm. the first eight works in the exhibition are all Aldo. They are all the Koba. They are all this Mm -hmm. manufactured male figure within various landscapes, right? And Mm -hmm. then we move to... The issue, which is when we get into Akanke's world. And Akanke, and I don't want to say favorites, but I love Akanke. I think she's like there's always that person who's growing up in a very privileged position, a very powerful position. But even then, she's not sure why. You know, she's kind of just like, what's, I mean, you see, you know, little bits and pieces, you know, because after Aldo's sort of introduction, we get into her world. We see her born in the pod, you know. Then we see her as a child amongst other children. Then we see her as a teenager and all the rest of it. And we're noticing each time an innocence, which is also an ignorance, of her position, of her benefit in the system and how she's been raised to believe that she is, you know, it's very manifest destiny idea, right? Like I am meant to go out in the world and propagate and do all these things that I'm meant to she's do. She's a part of the ruling right. class and so she operates. And I thought, how do I emphasize the women in this? Because I first they were just drawn like, you know, very similar to how we are as human beings. But I was like, no, I want to give them a crown. Mm-hmm. So they all have these sort of scars. And I saw this actually, uh, speaking of references we were discussing earlier, there's, I don't know what tribe it is, but it is West African. The Tiv. The Tiv, yeah. So you see when they have the scars on their head, I thought it was most, I almost wanted to do that. My mother would have had a heart attack, but it's it's around the head. So you have these scars that they draw and they're beautiful. And of course they protrude out because the body has to, you know, um, catarize around it. 
Like keloid scars. Almost. Exactly, keloid. And, and, and it's beautiful. And it's oh, usually around the head, sometimes on the shoulders and the neck. And I thought, oh, no, that's it. They have crowns built into their, their bodies, you know. So even as children, you see the crowns forming. And so that was where that came from. Well, it's so interesting because as I was obviously thinking about all of this and looking mm-hmm. at those references, there's also not just the beauty. So the scarification is to, is to enhance one's beauty, exactly. but it also speaks of one's sexuality, right? So mm-hmm. they talk about the erotic nature of touching yeah. them and how it is sensitive for a very long time. And so once it happens, it is a, a, a source of arousal. And in thinking about the works and at the point at which Akanke and Aldo finally touch one another, there are these moments where heads come together and there's these moments where the hand, the placement of the hand is so important because it just barely grazes the back of the neck or near this crown. And so I think um, it's so interesting that, that there's, it's thought of as simply a visual mechanism, but the idea that rubbing and touching one's head, especially adorned in this way, this crown, as you say, but also has an erotic or fertility implication. And mm. as, um, I mean, as we go through, I think it's really important to understand what I see in the work is this relationship between the female body and landscape. And we don't have to get into that right now, but I think, as one might look at the exhibition and think through the rock formations and the indentations on the rocks and then the the parallel with those, yes, on the heads and the stratification. I mean, you talk a lot about the stratification. So So much. It's so funny that you mentioned touch. Touch was a huge factor in how I was, you know, creating this because when you're thinking about basalt rock again, I'm thinking about how me as the archaeologist, quote unquote, is interacting with these objects. And it's, through touch, there's this idea about how the tactility of the work was very important. But I also think about touch in terms of the care. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Characters in this parable, because the Koba have only violent acts happen to them. The very first act of them being made is very violent because they're being seamed together. So all they know of is when it comes to touch is a, is a, is a violence. Whereas the issue don't have that. 
And so when Aldo and Akanke come together, he's so, I mean, that scene where she's, you know, the hands touch Mm -hmm. is so key. So I call it vocabulary because it's an education for him because he's never been touched that way. He's always been treated as with violence. That's his only means of understanding touch. That's his education. But for him to be touched gently and have that be an education for him, suddenly he realizes that his person is valuable. Suddenly he realizes that his body is not there simply to serve. It's also meant to receive. That's also a huge part of it too. So like, that's what I mean by touch in the mm-hmm. sense of like, when you talk about the erotic, the erotic, that that is very important because those scenes where they do come together are very key scenes for him and for them both because she's never meant to touch him either. So both of them are discovering themselves within that they are learning. It is a, it is a conversation that's being had, a dialogue through touch. At To The Barbican, we're committed to identifying new talent, nurturing emerging artists and supporting innovative work. If you're able, please show your support by making a donation and help us to inspire more people to discover and love the arts. Text Barbican 5 to 70085 to donate £5 plus one standard rate message or visit barbican.org uk forward slash donate and let's let's for those who may not again have seen the exhibition the exhibition is titled a countervailing theory mm-hmm. and women the issue are the ruling elite um and they dominate this the males the the coba who as you say are manufactured to serve them and so this expectation of touch is completely legal. It is completely unexpected. It is completely um, forbidden. Even if they do touch, it's not. It's not a gentle, right. It's not a kind touch. Um, And as we've talked about um, the two protagonists, um, Akanke, whose name means lovable at first sight, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Aldo, whose name means old or wise, um, in the U.S. and U.K. where we live, respectively. Um, power often plays itself out along lines of color, race, ethnicity, or nationality, and then class, with gender as a secondary or tertiary concern, which is why I think so many um, women scholars, particularly those of African descent, talk about and think about intersectionality, because there's this need for us to really um, ensure that all three are addressed at the same time. In a countervailing theory, the power dynamic at play is really primarily concerned with gender. So how did you narrow down, how did you determine that gender would be the way in which we understand the power dynamic? I think to countervail, obviously, the first thing I thought of was like, okay, we're in a predominantly globally patriarchal society. Nigeria is patriarchal. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't just think vis-a-vis, well, let's go all women. I actually always thought it was going to be a matriarchal society that dominated this world. I didn't even think of it as a reaction to patriarchy. However, in creating the Kobai, I did come up with some, you know, how do I solve this in the story? Because I think that I can't just have men be like, you know, it's like a revenge fantasy. Like it's like, oh man, they're just it's there to serve. Like, me, but I think it, yeah. you know what I mean? But it, it can be, it can get really reductive, yeah. is what I mean. And, and I wanted it to be like, no, like. There's layers to the power dynamics here. They they serve them. They they 
they cultivate land, you know, they, they, they mine, they, um, they build weaponry for them. They have a, a function, the Koba, you know, it's not just like some kind of, you know, let's see men naked and women clothed. Like I was trying to think, like, this is what happens, you know, when there's a group of people who work for another group of people, their only specific function is all they know. So everything that they are is tied to that. They don't know of any other existence. The SU obviously have a lot more freedom to be other people. The Koba do not. That was really what I was trying to get at in terms of the gendered aspect of it. And no one really thinks about that. Right. You know, it's like when you're constantly having to be subjugated, it means that you are only defined by a very restricted view. You don't have room to move. You can't do anything with it. The Eshu can do whatever they want. That's really what I was trying to get at. That's the power there. Well, and I think what's so interesting is that what you're proposing is a humanoid versus a human condition, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's often read within the context of being either male or female, but it's more complex than It's that. very complex. And that's, for me, is where the futuristic idea comes. What if we, at some point, have a population that is not human, mm-hmm. but is influenced by, manufactured by humans to serve? us or to serve humans what does how does that play out and i think the question that you pose about how does the oppressor behave um is one of the key questions that i think each one of the audience members is meant to consider and think about their role in all of these how are we complicit how are we um operating? what are your blind spots right what are, what are your biases that you bring to it because again it's like it's, it's even more than like what does the oppressor it's who the oppressor is mm-hmm. because the oppressor can be anyone you know, the issue could be anyone. It's what you, because when you start looking at them and thinking, oh, I can relate to that, I th-, then it's like, okay, but what are you saying? Yeah. Because that means that you are favoring the people who are hurting another people. So that's that's the thing that I was always trying yeah. to question. Well, and I, I wanted, I, the, the title, A Countervailing Theory, is brilliant. And you've talked about this as, you know, a term that is equal power, but opposite effect. But it refers to a book by John Kenneth Galbraith entitled American Capitalism, the concept of a countervailing power written in 1952. So it's it's interesting to me, again, that those um, that that notion of violence, that notion of extraction, that notion of um, the oppression is something that you've applied both to an ancient and a futuristic society, not set in the UK, not set in the US, but then again, globalizing this issue, right? And saying that there are many ways in which we should always be thinking about that. Um, One of the other things about the exhibition, which you must see to really experience is that you have addressed the ecological, the economic, the social, (laughs) the cultural, and the sexual, all within the context of these 40 canvases um, that really do tell a story, which I think we've begun to unpack, but we should unpack a bit more. I mean, you know, the capitalistic, like the legacy of capitalism was, was always in my mind. That's why I wanted to use countervail, the word countervailing. And that essay, when I discovered it, countervailing power was like a godsend. It, all of it was, there were so many moments where I was doing the research for this that I, I felt like I was really blessed because that, word encompasses so much it's very specific but it encompasses so much because so much of capitalism affects our daily life in every aspect it can't just be like seen from this historical lens of 1950s and like the the, the creation of the concept of the consumerist the uh, consumerism and how people can be sort of tied to a capitalistic model and how they feel about themselves and how they they can live in the world because so much of what 
our world now is defined by is people feel like they they get validation from capitalism, right? People often say, oh, I just got to make that paper, then I'm going to be okay. It's almost as if I'm like, you know, they're using capitalism to give them self-worth, which is ironic when that's not the purpose of capitalism yeah, ever. Yeah. It was never the purpose of capitalism. And also when you dig deeper, as, as we are black women, black bodies, yeah. we're capital. Like that, that exacerbated the process. That was, capitalism existed before that. But I think once you introduce bodies, they had been indentured servants in feudal times. They had been all kinds of systems in place. But the slave, the chattel slave trade specifically made, make sure that a black body from Africa was the equivalent of a quarry seed. That was it. That was what it became. And that was there for generations. And for some reason, people just kind of forget that because all of the systems in place, the concept of credit in America came from slavery. You had credit of slaves. That's how people like and now we use it for our credit cards. I mean, just think about this. Like, think about what how much the legacy of black bodies has become a striation in culture. Literally, literally. And it affects everything. You can't get alone now without thinking about the reference of how that leads to slavery. There's so many things. And so I, I, I loved when I found countervailing. I thought it was like, this explains so much. Because of course it has to be that something of equal force has to be countered by something else. That's the only way this is going to work. And how often that is never used, how often that is often, 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 sorry, is fought against. They always want to not, they, they don't want it to be countervailing. This is America. They want it to be dominant only. One dominant, you know, principle, one dominant narrative. Right, right. Well, not think, to bring in another one and introduce it. Well, what is also um, your flipping of the script, as you have called it, is this way in which the counter, mm -hmm. the, the oppositional force is listening, is love, mm -hmm is the risk to love, is the risk to listen, and in many ways is also that touch, right? So it is not an equal or opposite violence, which I think people um, often believe is the response and the way in which one might change the system. And I think within this exhibition, you propose that there are many ways that, that the system, the striations might change, but that one of the most powerful might be listening. Um, and again, dialogue. Yeah. I mean, it's like, there's all this, I mean, we're right now in the age of protests, right? The resurgence of that. There's a lot of emphasis on destruction. People love to destroy things. It's very easy to destroy things, actually. It's very hard to build. That's what listening's about. Because that means you can't talk. You genuinely have to let the person finish. Don't just like wait for them to finish so you can talk. Really hear what they're saying. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, because that builds things, you know, it creates like it's a negotiation. It, it builds upon and it gets up. It, it creates a foundation for something else to, to come into the fore, because whenever everyone's just waiting to talk or everyone's just creating in order to destroy someone else's point, like, you know, that's why I can't stand debates. I can't stand that. That's not a dialogue. But what's so interesting is obviously an understanding, a lesson in listening, mm -hmm. is the work in which um, Akanke places her hand, her hand over, over 
her mouth so she can listen to Aldo. And in this context, Akanke being the ruling class and Aldo being the oppressed class, it's the idea that one of the solutions is just to stop talking and listen long enough to understand what that context of oppression has meant, how you as oppressor are complicit and how the oppressed feels based on having lived within this system. That piece was supposed to be a countervailing theory. That was the title. But then I was like, nah. And then I called it an understanding because I feel like if anything can cross, like you mentioned, the the social, the economic, the political, all of that is understanding. We had a very, one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you, Erin, was that we had a very deep conversation while I was working on this show about love. And I remember you were telling me something. Oh, maybe I said it. Where it was like, I don't think I like to hear someone say I love you. I want them to say I understand you. That's so much more powerful to me than saying I love you. That's what that piece is about. Because for her to understand him, that completely disrupts everything. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, really hard to arrive at. Because I think a lot of people come with their own ideas and their own things that they really hold on to, principles, beliefs, all of that stuff gets tied in. And it's tied to how you you feel you are. And it's like, this is all I have is that. Mm-hmm. But when you let go of your, that and you open yourself up to understanding and less about ego and less about what you think, I have to place my claim in this, even in a dialogue, something else is created. A new meaning, a new form is created. You know, from two opposite things. You know, we can get really a new space. space. I mean, we can get really like direct about it and say, like, oh, you're making a baby. That's what I did in this parable. But really, what it is, is like a new understanding happened there. From that moment, when that piece happens, and of course, I I doubled down with it with um, uh, accepting impermanence, you know, because then they're having a very long conversation. Yes, a different kind of conversation. But a very long and and beautiful conversation. But in that, a new idea is formed. A new understanding is formed in the in the form of the twins, and like, but it's also the possibility of a, of a different system. Exactly. It's a third possibility. It's a third meaning. Yeah, and yeah. like that, that's what you want to aim for. As that's what countervailing the activity of that brings. Two forces just just come together, and that's it. A new meaning comes from the two forces. Well, what was so interesting to me is that I think. People automatically respond to this idea of a woman-led society or a matriarchal society without really understanding what possibilities that opens up. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the current narrative around feminism can be a little polarizing for some people who haven't really experienced the possibilities of um, female leadership. But what... What I know to be true about you is that you're a voracious reader, as am I, and I know that you've spent time uh, thinking about Octavia Butler's work, thinking about Yagasi, thinking about Chimamande, um, but there are, you know, um, also Audre Lorde and mm-hmm. Alice Walker coined the term womanist in 1979 in her book Coming Apart. And I think we operate, and I think as a way that one might understand the context of what's happening with the Ishu is that they are also very womanist. And a womanist society is one in which you restore the balance between people, environment, and nature, reconciling human life through a third or a spiritual dimension. Mm. And I wanted to kind of get your response to that idea because it feels 
as though it's something that is happening within the work. And as we talk about touch and the effect of touch, as we talk about the way in which this act of cunnilingus is, 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 um, a new way of speaking, right? Mm -hmm. It's a conversation. I mean, listen, I wish that the issue were womenist. Mm. I do, but they're oppressors. I want them to in my heart. I sometimes drew them in a very favorable light and I knew that I was my biases being projected onto the pictures. There's a few pictures where I'm like, oh, I'm being a little too, I'm giving them a little too much play Mm. because they're not great people. They're extracting a lot from the land. They're using the Koba to extract. They're using the Koba for a variety of means that are not healthy for the land. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, they're not bad people. You know what I mean? They do bad things. And so I I feel like the womanist aspect is so powerful and aspirational. And I want them to be that. Mm -hmm. And that's there. But I I don't think that that was the, that's not the read that I got. Even as I was making it, I was like, they're still doing bad things. No, They're not thinking about the collective. I romanticize it as a woman. As a woman, (laughs) I hope, I I I ask myself wondering, like, would we have to do that? And it's it's a romantic notion. I, I, I always see, I mean, listen, I'm always suspicious of people. Everyone's sus to me, you know. So I, I don't trust anybody, but that's just my own issue. So I would love for us to be womanist. I think, again, it has to be a combination, mm-hmm. right? It, it, back mm-hmm. to that countervail. Everything about countervailing is actually in how it's interpreted, too, not just in how I applied it in the show. Right. You have to think about both sides of something. You have to think about what else could be factored in here. We can't completely remove men from the concept. You know what I mean? Exactly. As much as they have done with women. Right. Is it better to be them as a revenge? Again, I'm not thinking revenge fantasy. I'm thinking about, can we go above that? Can right. we create something new from this? Right. We know what's happened. We see how bad it is. We need to figure out a way to come together. The problem is they're not even listening to us. And that's why there's a lot of fear about womanist theory and feminist theory. Because they still don't listen. So it's really not even our point to even get As into was it. demonstrated just the other night Ooh, when the tag along was, I'm knew. speaking. The fly knew. Um, no. But please continue. Well, no. I mean, I, to go back to the work and, and really, I'm glad that you refuted that idea because it's, it's, I think it's something that people as they go through the exhibition should test for themselves, should mm, think exactly. through and really understand what this option might present. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a risk to present a body of work that featured women as the ruling class. And I wanted to think through um, this being your sixth museum solo exhibition. Oh, Jesus, is it been? And, that I did not know. Right. And all, <laughs> <laughs> although you did the 12th Manifesto Biennale in Palermo, this is your first international solo exhibition. And you did respond to the curb as, you know, people have discussed with these 40 drawings ranging from at their largest 87 by 103 yeah, inches. Yeah. yeah to like 13 by about 18 inches. I don't like to think so about the number. <laughs> well, I, again, for people who might be listening and may not be able to see it in terms of thinking through how vast and then how um, minimal in terms of size these works are, but how luscious and rich and textured and diverse literally every one of those works is where they range from the embryo and one body at its very formative stages through to multiple bodies literally dancing across what feels like these 
mountain escapes and engaging with one another and with one another's shadows. And so, um, you know, in this body of work, that is one of the risks, but you took other risks, whereas in untold stories at the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis, and as in a matter of fact at the Museum of the African Diaspora in 2016, and then in most recently to Wander Determined at the Whitney and testing a name at SCAD, all those bodies of work were rendered in color. Mm -hmm. And then a ballpoint pen and ink and colored pencil and pastel. This is black and white. Yeah. This is white chalk and pastel and charcoal mm -hmm. on a black. Just a, just a linen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you, this is a huge risk. It is huge. And you took it overseas. And let's just unpack that. I mean, I also can't be trusted to be consistent. I mean, that's also part of it. I, I don't like, um, I, I mentioned this before, but I, I, I really want to double down on this point. I think that if you as an artist are constantly defined by what you just did, you're in trouble. You kind of have to be afraid. You kind of have to risk. If you're not even putting yourself in a place where you're not comfortable and you're not really feeling like you have an upper hand, you're in I think you're in trouble as an artist. You're going to have to be in spaces that you're not entirely in command. I hadn't worked monochromatically in this way ever, especially the fact that I'm working on a, on a black ground, let alone, yeah. you know, I'd done like it on blackboard, mm -hmm. um, but I hadn't done like a painted gessoed linen gr ground. And again, like linen, I hadn't worked on linen ever. So I, I knew that I was going to have to get very uncomfortable, get comfortable with being uncomfortable very quickly and understand that certainty was not going to be a factor anymore with this show. But that was also kind of the beauty of discovering it. You know, the thing about like mining, we mentioned mining and archaeology and geology. That was part of the visual that that influenced that decision, because I thought if this is going to be something that is like unearthed mm -hmm. from the ground, it's black. Well, I was thinking basalt, black mm -hmm. basalt or black shale. Sorry. I thought about that visually and how that might look. And the whole idea of the scans, that was that was really what I was thinking even when I was making it. I was thinking, well, that, this would have to be scanned. This would have to be something that's like an impression on a surface. So that really gave me a lot of room and freedom to create texture play and create a, like a visual language. Now, you have to understand, when I was doing this, I was also trying to discover who I was. Like, I was trying to discover idiolect. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think after I did Whitney and all these other shows, I, I understood that my mark was tinged by a certain traditional art historical canon of working. It was very Eurocentric and very pictorially pretty in that way and convenient in that way and I wanted to understand if I could what is my idiolite what is the what is my like visual I know it's a strange word to use but what is it like what what do I like to draw what lines do I keep doing that was what I would put in the pictures because I would pay attention to them and I'm like okay I like to do this mark a lot like this movement a lot with my hands or like if I'm working on something really large why these striations so tight because I could make the striations very far away but for some reason I wanted them really tight why do I do that? Let's work with that. That becomes a language. That becomes a reason in the picture and that leads to another picture. And that built the story over time. And what the beauty of having 40, as scary as it was, was that I could test out those marks, that idiolect in every picture. So sometimes an idiolect would fail by like, I don't know, the 10th picture. I was like, ah, I'm not so great about that now. But the ones that remained were so educational to me very instructive. It's like, why am I always doing that line? And of course, the one that always remained was the skin. 
the skin always had that layering and the marking and the history of those layers. And I just realized that this wasn't just something that I do. This is something that's me. It's like, that's just who I am. That's how I see the world. And it was, it was a gift of this, this show and working monochromatically. Because I think if I had color, I would have been distracted or at least had too much color. I would have been distracted. Whereas when I'm focusing just on the, you know, certain tones and gradations and line and texture, that really honed in on my mark and my line. And it became, like I said, like an idiolite, something that I could reference and say, okay, this is me. This is me on some foundational level. And it felt, I mean, to reference those lines and that way in which this body of work is distinct, not just in terms of the monochromatic nature of it, mm. but really the way in which you have that repetition that moves from the figurative at times into both landscape and then abstraction. And I think you and I talked at a certain point about a interest in and a way in which this idea of the landscape gave you options to mm. think about abstraction differently. What did meaning the rocks and the the hundreds of various kinds of rocks and algae and aloe and cactus and plant formations exactly. and bonsai trees and what feels <laughs> like baobab trees, but all of that moving outside of um, your previous way of engaging to thinking through um, what both that line and the possibility of erasure. I think the scan, as we talked about it, meant that you had to give age, not just texture, but age to these canvases a and a weathered look. And I remember a moment of deep anxiety as I watched you. There was a lot of moments of anxiety, but yes. I felt as though you were erasing something. Mm. You moved across the canvas and I thought, what's going to happen to this image? Mm. And you said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Mm. So that was Altered Landscape. Which is a a work we will talk about in depth. But can you talk a little bit about, I mean, that way in which you have now mastered, I think, working through um, not just landscapes, but these various moments of abstraction within the canvases. Mm -hmm. How does that feel? Does it feel like a new part of your visual language? Does it feel like something that you have? Does it feel like you've mastered it? Does it feel familiar I think that was something, again, back to that, you like, I think that was always there. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have an opportunity to to get into that, mm-hmm. to mine that mm-hmm. in myself and in my mm-hmm. my work. You know, I think I was so concerned about the picture being really well constructed that I didn't realize that I may have these certain proclivities of mark, you know. And I do have a, a tendency to go into the abstract. I mean, you don't draw, like with the pen and ink works from my early days, yeah. you don't draw like that without having some kind of abstract sure. notion. So like I knew that I was like, okay, here I'm in an entirely different material, mm-hmm. entirely different monochromatic palette. Will this hold? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're questioning yourself. I was challenging myself. You know, I wasn't just, you know, ca- uh, having a countervailing theory of, of ideas. I was a countervailing theory of my own, like, ideas and principles and challenging them. Um, in the visual arena. And, and what I came from that was, was really helpful. Um, so yeah, I think that that was that expansion, but abstraction is something that I see in the figure all the time. I, I see it in, in the marks, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier to Lottie about how, uh, someone, I think it was Philip Glass describing Chuck Close's work mm. that it's not just a portrait. It's an occasion for the marks to happen. I feel that way about the pictures. You know, they're an occasion for me to mark, you know, to create and to test ideas through the marks. And when you, 
I don't say limit the palette, but when you when you hone in on the palette in a monochromatic way, you really can get into the event of the marks and what is happening. Right. Um, and that's what I hope that the audience travels through when they when they go through the works. But yeah, altered landscape wasn't a bit of an erasure. But I, I think by that point in the stage, I was just kind of like testing. I was still testing how far I could go with my marks, and that's where it was. And let's talk about that. And and just to clarify, because you 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 do bring up a point that for those who may not have seen your other bodies of work, I think is bears repeating is that you have worked in abstraction within the figures Absolutely. and certainly within their textures and clothing. It's all there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to think through again, this in this monochromatic body of work, Absolutely. how that looks in, um, in all of these works for me, again, the figure ground relationship, this idea of the landscape, that it's dual. So you have what feels like um, plants and the shrubs and the trees and the cacti mm-hmm. all really um, engage so much with the actual figure that they, the female body and the notion of territory seem to be working along the same lines and I hate to use the word lines as we just moved out of it but but they form the female body seems to itself be a territory a nation a space that you may enter and exit at will and that at times you could be exiled from I think there's this moment where um Akanka and Alde Aldo leave and they're away they're away from everyone else's eyes they're away from um the rest of society and they're able to engage in that privacy, but feels like they then are in another land. And in fact, in the very last image, we see how they themselves become one melded body, one melded landscape, one melded territory. Um, But in altered landscape specifically, um, the shadow dissipates, the body dissipates and three quarters of that image is landscape. Three quarters of that image is the sky, the water. Well, everything's being washed away. Everything's being washed away. And one of the things that I was trying to, I don't know if it's really evident in that moment as well, is like that everything that the world has known of that point is washed away by that death. So what comes out of it, that's why the tribunal is so important and why the summons that happens after is so important is because this... Uh, act that has happened to this issue warrior has affected the land so deeply that it has to be punished. This is what I mean by like this idea of like you alter the landscape, the land, you alter everything, histories, everything that comes with that land. And a new one is formed. But here's the thing, the new land that is formed is coming from Aldo Nakanke, unbeknownst to everybody. You know, they're thinking they're just going to rebuild what was there before. That can't happen anymore. That's been destroyed by that altered landscape. So from that moment on, the landscape that we see at the end with Riom Rock, yeah. the parable rock, that is the new land that Akanke and Aldo built together. But it takes a while to get there. Yeah. You know what I mean? The erosion that's happening right, right now in central Nigeria, the erosion that happens to a lot of places of ancient and spiritual significance in the world, in colonized lands, has been happening for so long. People don't realize that there's never been a summons in that sense. Mm. Mm. what has happened to these people and to what's happened to this land and I think that that was my also again my way of trying to just give us something like we might not see it you know we might not see the promised land I know we might not see it but we have to believe it's coming right. you know because right. you can't just take and take and take and take and just expect that it's not going to happen we're in the middle of a climate change crisis like this is going to be a reckoning and it will be an altered landscape across the globe are people going to recognize that and, and steer 
into a direction of preservation and conservation, planting a seed, or are they going to do what they've been doing? Right. And that's, you know, that moment comes, you know, I, I'm not going to teach the audience what to think in that respect. They have to make that decision on their own because there are people who still don't believe we're in that. No, but I think I think it becomes clear as you go through the images that there is there is a call to mm. respond to climate uh, change to and ecological. to ecological shifts and, yeah. and the effect of mining. As you Absolutely. say, there has not been a way in which people have been held accountable or mm-hmm. tried, but then also that is unprotected land. So we think about the notion of the unprotected sites, both in Nigeria of Joss Plateau, but then also for Native Americans in the Absolutely. U.S. and for multiple Absolutely. types of yes. um original peoples in lands indigenous where lands, yeah, indigenous lands Absolutely. it feels it feels really essential um we skipped over something that i think is worth returning to as we think about the female body and that is its adornment um we talked a little bit earlier as we walked through the exhibition just about how um for me there's the armor right yeah. so there's the way in which you've engaged with contemporary fashion and contemporary designers and that notion of the futuristic that there are clothes that people do not wear but that are are extremely um made with relationship to the ecological and to the environment but also and function, function yeah. as armor they yeah. are yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that oh it's just athleisure i mean i'm just gonna be real i just kept thinking about like oh, they have boobs you know they're gonna need something to keep them together and they're going to need something to, you know, but I also didn't think that it's also hot. So they're, they're going to have to have certain things. The, the, the funny thing is with the uniforms and the, the armor, I was really thinking about lightweight stuff. Mm. And I was thinking, but I also love boots. Okay. I mean, come on. I had to give them boots. But then the thing that also, if you notice with training for compatibility, they have a, a, a circular mm-hmm. cover mm-hmm. because they're still training. And um, that came from seeing uh, like uh, Art Deco sort of like halter tops um and that that came in from that and then of course like everything else coming into it like i was thinking about uh bicycle shorts i was thinking like different skirts for individualization right certain women have different uh, style uh mm-hmm. skirts and that come over their bicycle shorts mm-hmm. um and of course the the bras and the rest of it but the staff and the earrings were key. The earrings. So the staff is the weaponry that they use. It extends at will and comes in. It's almost like a you know, it's like a sci-fi element in there. The earrings um, indicate adulthood. So, so they're not see. in all images, exactly. right? The audience has to. So with training for compatibility, moment. and when they're kids, you don't see them with earrings. It's not until oh god, it's killing me what the title of this work is. Um, <laughs> but it's when you see a conke uh, after she's been given her first weapon so uh that piece uh is when you see her with her earrings for the first time and that's like you know it's just like a nice little way to top it off to be like this is where she proceeds moving forward um but yeah like that that's there's all these moments like that throughout the show first signs first yes first signs first development first weapon Mm -hmm. that is when you you see her become a full adult and you see that her clothing has changed She's no longer wearing the circular uh, thing. She's wearing like a bra um, uh, sort of like covering. And uh, she has her skirt that's been made for her and her weapon and all the rest of it and her earrings. And the issue get to pick their earrings and all that stuff. So these are all things that are in there, but uh, they were fun for me to, to build. So yeah, those moments are really kind of nice. Little moments to show 
that this is a fully formed civilization. And it, it does feel that way. And the only, it's so interesting because obviously you have an exhibition up now and that exhibition now at Jack Shaman Gallery in mm-hmm. New York called Tell Me a Story, I Don't Care If It's True, mm-hmm. um, has text. And yeah. so again, it's another risk. It's another change. The scale is obviously mm-hmm. um, much smaller than the body of work much here, more intimate, yeah. much more intimate. But in that body of work, you use text. And I'm wondering... Um, now that you have included text and you've told this, this story here without text, how... Well, you... technically there is text in this at the end. But I meant yeah. alongside each image. I'm sorry. As oh, in, no, I see yes, what you mean. Okay. But I feel like that whole, I mean, this whole these 40 works are one work in my mm-hmm. mind. They're all one thing. They're not individualized anyway. So the text at the end of the pillar is sort of that is the text that accompanies this one work right. that is composed of 40 scenes, sort of like a graphic novel or a storyboard. So once you get to the end, that goes back to what we were discussing about our ideas around Joe's Plateau, not our ideas, but you know the, the reality of what's happening in central Nigeria, the reality of extraction and ecological um, disruption and erosion, capitalistic intervention, particularly from foreign bodies and investments, and how that is all tied into a countervailing theory as a whole. And I think text has always been a part of, I mean, obviously it's always been a part of my work, but I, I very re- rarely bring it out into the fore simply because I think there's a visual language that I like people to engage with first and to invest in first and to read first. And then there's the symbology of text that can kind of also be another added fictive layer for people, um, both of which act in tandem in the space, in the curve. And I purposefully put it at the end for that purpose. I want you to go through reading the pictures, then you read the text. So it's almost like you would read it like a label would, or didactic text in a museum. That's how I wanted it to operate and function in the space. But text for me is is always there in my work. I'm always writing about it. I wrote this story out when I was doing the research. I spent like eight months just writing and then finally figured it out what I wanted to do. I don't think the audience needs to know all of that, but I do want it to be there for me so that when I do engage in moments like the the text and the pillar it can have a function that's very specific and it's just the right framework for everyone and then they can move out and it's I think I think you're right there is so much text within each one of these works that it it can be read and it should be it's visual text it's very (laughs) visual text I mean I think when we discuss the adornment and when we discuss the um, ways in which the skin is treated and ways in which the landscape is treated. Yeah. All of those are um, parts of your vocabulary, Absolutely. the touch in and of itself. Um, there's one other element that I forgot to mention as we were discussing the altered landscape, but um, the shadow. Within each one of these works, the shadow um, is present somehow. And I think the shadow has multiple meanings, mm-hmm. but the meaning that is most evident is the the separation between the living self mm-hmm. and then the self that is no longer operating the same way in the physical world. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about why the shadow was so important? Why did you use that particular element? How do you... I'll end it on this. How do you... Um, how do you encapsulate the essence of someone? How do you... Because there's a lot of surface play literally we've talked about the geological and all of these other things the isms but then there's also this other imaginary 
that I wanted to give the audience. And I also wanted to give just young people who are seeing this. And it's this idea about what I want people to value of themselves, what they can claim for themselves, what they can keep. And that is your soul. It, it has so many meanings in different contexts and different nations and different languages, but the soul. And that spirit drives people, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, whether they want to put a re religiosity to it or not, it's there. We all know it to be true, a gut feeling, whatever you want to call it. I made it shadow in this show. And um, in that, it functions in a really interesting way because then it becomes a means for a much more psychological picture in a lot of ways. The very first picture you see of Aldo when he's having sort of like a psychological kind of moment when he's first born and he's, well, made, sorry. He's made and he's contending with his existence. His shadow is seeping through everything because he's 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 figuring out, his soul is figuring out what he is. And um, acclimation and placement, same thing. The shadow intersperses through the striated system of which they're being placed because they're trying to figure out what they are. So, you know, it, it's, it was my sort of like, again, it's, it's, it's text, it's something to be read. You know, when you see that in each picture and of course an altered landscape, it dissolves because what is attacked? Not the woman's body, it is her essence, it is her shadow that is attacked. That is far more potent and far more profound than simply attacking her body, which honestly violence of the female body is already to me Overdone. so tiresome. So that becomes a function in the picture, in the story as well. And I think that, you know, the only way I can, I, I'm trying my best to, to say that the shadow is a very powerful moment in the story. It's something that carries through. And when there's absence of shadow, it's also very important because it means that the person is not acknowledging the souls, not acknowledging their internal, like, um, metaphysical weight they're not really considering it or it's absent and it's been taken from them. So they don't have a soul. And so much of what you are and how you're defined, even if you are made, even if you are manufactured, even if you are subjugated, you have a soul. You still have that. No one can take that away from you. You know, that is still given to the Koba, you know. And it's seen. It's something that is seen and it has a place in the world. It affects the landscape around them, right? So it can't be denied. So they try to take anything you want from you, but you have that. You have your soul. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I could stay all day, every day, <laughs> but I do think that there is a way in which the rhythm and the rhythm Absolutely. of your working and the way in which your marks have a rhythm to them in each mm -hmm. one of these um, 40 works in this undulating hang, which... I mean, you know I had to do all it. All <laughs> You know, <laughs> had to do it to take us back to Japan and the Chinese and the staccato really you know just to end on this real please, quick please. the hang came from Miles Davis seeing his uh, one of his uh, music recordings because he was one of the few musicians that could read music right he was like one of the few and I just remember seeing one of his uh, sheets uh, music sheets and I thought oh that's so beautiful and that's how I did the hang <laughs> I send the mock up to Lati and Charlotte I'm like have a field day with this one, guys. Well, between the, <laughs> the changing wall color and the undulating hang mm -hmm. and the works themselves, I 
am so honored and humbled to have been able not just to see it here, but to be able to have this conversation with you. I think on behalf of the audience and curators and everyone who will see this exhibition, thank you so much for your rigor. Thank Thank you. you so much for your attention to detail. Thank you so much for your commitment to this practice and to expanding our understanding of the possibilities of humanity. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Nothing Concrete. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.